welcome to From the Booth, a podcast where we talk about the films playing at the BYU International Cinema. We are now in week nine of the IC winter semester. My name is Marila Oskerson, Assistant Director of International Cinema, and I'm happy to welcome Dan Paul to our podcast today. Hello, Paul. Hello. You study representations of masculinity in Italian cinema and culture. Your research as well includes gender and sexuality studies, disability studies, trauma theory, and transnational identities. You study Italian literature and popular culture and culture, including film, television, digital media, and streaming platforms like Netflix and the emerging academic medium of the video essay. So a great array of research. Today, we're talking about Vittorio De Sica's Bicycle Thieves, a simple story in some ways. A bicycle is stolen. A man is on a quest for his bicycle. It's filmed in the Italy of post-World War II. What is the cultural climate, the historical background that can help us understand this film, Paul? Yeah, thank you, Marie, for having me, first of all. And uh, that's a great question. I think when talking about bicycle thieves, as you mentioned, we're in the post-World War II period. And so we're in a period of great economic upheaval. Italy is in a sort of economic crisis. And you can certainly see that within the film with the character of Antonio and his struggle to find a job, in addition to now getting a job, then losing his bicycle, which is very much connected to his job. So, you know, neorealism itself has a sort of heritage that it takes on during World War II and, you know, a film like Rome Open City, which is one that a lot of people refer to within neorealism. But, you know, neorealism has this tendency to represent reality to the best of its possibilities, to the best of its capabilities. And so, you know, I think that the cultural climate is one where people are dealing with what happened in World War II. They're now having to struggle through this economic crisis, which sort of anticipates an economic miracle that's going to occur in Italy in the 1950s. And, you know, in the 1950s, we see a pretty strict end to neorealism in favor of new genres. Yes, and so we see that it's some it's a film that's that's mainly filmed on location. There's this realism, right? Yes. Um, the actors as well are mostly non-professional actors, Correct. Mm-hmm. right? So, so everything to to give this this sense of this is what's happening. This is we're representing a what it is to live and and be poor in this era. Yeah, and and you know the use of the non-professional actors. There's kind of fun history there. So. The actor who plays Antonio, Lamberto Majorani, didn't actually do an audition. The director saw him walking on a street and the way that he walked, he just kind of fell in love with him as as a person and chose to put him into the film. And a similar thing with the boy who plays Bruno and Sostaiola, the director, so De Sica, had a lot of auditions for this character and ultimately chose Stiola because of the way that his gate matched up with Antonio's gate, with Lamberto Majorani's gate, as a way to sort of play off of each other and to sort of play off of the relationship between them. Because you'll see in the film that Bruno is often sort of left behind, right? His father is often separated from him through space, and Bruno often has to run to catch up with his dad throughout the film. So yeah, it's uh, it's very much the, the use of non-professional actors in this film. And there are a lot of fun anecdotes behind that sort of this construction of 
the neorealist facade, if we want to call it that. Very good. Thank you. Mm -hmm. How how does Bicycle Thieves fit with the other neorealist films of that era? You know, it's fairly different. So when I teach Bicycle Thieves, I often teach it in relation to Rome Open City by Roberto Rossellini, in particular because of the somewhat different representations of Rome. So Rome Open City was shot kind of towards the end of World War II, 1945. And there are shots of this city sort of destroyed and attempting to capture the effects of World War II on the Italian people in Rome. And the representation of the people of Rome is very particular as well. So you have the partisan resistance, the Italian partisans who are fighting against the Nazis, and they're depicted as really, 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 really good. You have this sort of moral dichotomy between the partisans who are fighting for the good and the Nazis who are the evil and are portrayed as really, 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 really bad. And that's sort of connected to questions of sexuality. So the Nazis are often portrayed as homosexuals and the partisans are not. They have these sort of very nice heterosexual relationships. And the way to sort of get to a question later of the representation of Roman in Bicycle Thieves, the way that the partisans are able to navigate the city, they have an intimate knowledge of the city and are able to sort of find these passages and navigate through the streets very freely. Whereas the Nazis, the sort of main protagonist of Rome Open City, finds himself navigating the city behind his desk through pictures of Rome. So you have this sort of very static way of knowing and getting to know Rome on the part of the Nazis versus this very active living within the city of the partisans. In Bicycle Thieves, I think the way that Rome is represented is is more as labyrinthine. So Antonio sort of navigates the city, but you never get a sense of him moving anywhere. It sometimes feels like it's secular to some extent that he starts at one point and he eventually circles around back to the same point. And he's not able to navigate it in the same way that the partisans were in Rome City. So, you know, I think that there's a certain tradition that it's trying to continue, but, you know, it's definitely breaking with this period of, of great upheaval of World War II and trying to figure out a new way to think about economic crisis, to think about rebuilding and reconstruction and and what's happening in the post-war period compared to some of the earlier films in the neorealist movement. Interesting. When you talk about the movement in the city, this is something that was very striking to me. First Mm -hmm. of all, the city could be a character itself. Everything is filmed outside. There's just a few scenes inside. I'm thinking about the church or the home. When you talk about sexuality in the other film, there's not much sexuality in this film. There's not. uh, Right? But the wife take the sheets from the, the marital bed. And those mm-hmm. are the ones that, that they're going to take to the pond to get the bike back. So there, there's Correct, yeah. a message about this couple who the bed is not made, right, for them. So anyway, there's yeah. just that's a little bit dysfunctional maybe there. But the movement was very interesting to me in this film and how it's always about getting to point A to point B. There's like a lot of people using transportation, mm-hmm. biking, all kinds of things. Like at some point he's on a on a truck that for the people who service the city and clean it, there's just yeah. walking under the rain. I mean, it's just there's such an effort about the movement and this quest that you said leads nowhere. And yeah. so what kind of message can we see about the socioeconomical kind of rise, uprise and, and movement as well? 
or lack of movement thereof. Yeah, definitely. And and you know, you bring you bring out one of the main contradictions of bicycle thieves in that you know Antonio is an individual that's fighting against these sort of very dire circumstances. You know, his bike is stolen, but there are bikes everywhere in this movie, right? And so you know, it it's sometimes kind of funny to think about the way that his situation ends up, you know, he, he eventually becomes one of the thieves himself. But to kind of circle back to your question about the socioeconomic status, you know, he's, and this is sort of connected to his bike, right? So his ability to have a bike allows him to provide for his family, right? There's this connection between the presence of the bike and bringing home the bacon to some extent, in a way, we can look at the bike as a sort of stand-in for Antonio's masculinity, that the bike, because it's so connected to his ability to be the breadwinner for his family, stands in for this sense of, oh, I can be a good father if I have this bike, and I can be a good husband if I have this bike. And, you know, yes, he has initially this ability to move around the city with the bike that is then taken from him, right? So not only does he lose his means for providing for his family, but because his identity and masculinity is so tied up in that bike, he also loses a sense of that identity. And yes, his inability to to move around the city on the bike, I think is this prefigures his inability to get out of his circumstance, right? It seems like everything is working against him to to keep him where he is. And there's the scene when he's in the restaurant with Bruno and they're having these these mozzarella sandwiches. And you can see Bruno, who's always looking over his shoulder at this other kid who's there, who, you know, he's kind of snotty and he's kind of obnoxious. But you really see the separation between these two economic classes, right? That Antonio, who doesn't even seem to know basic math and asks Bruno to do the math for him, doesn't have the ability to reach that table or bridge that divide where that other family is sitting and and the more well-off family is sitting. So yeah, I I definitely think that there is an extreme lack of social mobility that is in part caused by the crisis, but also in part uh, just the circumstances that he's, Antonio is not able to really get help from anyone. All the institutions that he turns to, these social institutions, so he turns to his trade union and the trade union can't help. He turns to the police and the police can't help. He turns to the church and the church can't help. So I think you have in there, you have the state, you have the church, and then you have this sort of labor union and all of these institutions fail him. And what I think is sort of interesting, a sort of interesting aside to this is the one institution that is able to help him is the Santona, right? The seer. Um, and his wife had gone to her previously and her her advice, her help was, she believed what helped Antonio get the job and then have the bike. And when Antonio later goes to her, her sort of comment is, either you're going to find the bike immediately or you're never going to find it, right? And that that sort of elicits this, oh man, like he's never going to find the bike. But then he leaves the Santona and who does he find immediately? He finds the thief. And so to some extent, she's right. He found the bike by means of finding the thief. And obviously we know how that ends. He ends up with a confrontation and and sort of the mass, the, the community of the thief coming to rally against Antonio and support the thief um, in a very interesting way. But I think it's interesting that this one social institution that he turns to, that he's sort of skeptical of at the beginning, ultimately is what allows him to find the thief. 
Very interesting indeed. Yeah. Your comments about um, it, it's true that in the film that it's always the individual with or against um, a more collective image of society. Yeah. And, you know, I think you see a lot of that. So in those three institutions that he goes to, well, the first time we, we see it is in the pawn shop when the worker takes the sheets and sort of climbs all these shelves and puts the sheets up there. And you can just see how many things have been pawned and how much how many sets of sheets even have been pawned. But you can also see it early on in the film. So when the job is being announced, you have this group of men that are sort of surrounding the person who's going to come out and talk about the work. And Antonio is by himself. He's sitting kind of over by a fountain all by himself. And, you know, that part is kind of frustrating to me because you're like, oh, like, if you really want a job, why aren't you with these other people that are waiting to get jobs that are waiting to hear the announcements? But no one said he has to have someone come and tell him that his name has been called. And it would have been just as easy for someone to, you know, raise their hand and be like, oh, yeah, I'm Richie. Like, no big deal. I, I, I'm here. I want a job. Right. So I think that's one of the instances, the pawn shop is another, but in the police uh, office as well, the police officer essentially says, you know, we can't help you. And you can see on the wall, all of the different papers that represent individual crimes and, and um, this sort of idea of, yeah, this is just the state of Italy right now. And, and, you know, the police don't have the time or the capabilities to dedicate to finding one person's bike. And so it's always a sort of upward struggle. I think you get the sort of collective poverty in the church versus the individual poverty of Antonio, but it's sort of all over the place in very subtle ways. And with this as well, he expresses that he feels like a man in chain. So maybe, you know, this frustration that, that you have watching him not being with the other people who are needing a work Maybe he's he's just there somewhere. Like there's just this this lack of hope. He's in chain. Like in the police station, I I, I remember the policeman saying, asking the policeman what what it is all about, and the answer is oh just a bike, nothing. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's he's always brought back to nothing to to being shushed up in the church, mm-hmm. um, being completely controlled by the mob um, who are helping the, the thief. So when you talk about masculinity, there's definitely there something that de- deconstructs masculinity. And, yeah. and as you saw the bike with that masculinity, there is uh, something very symbolic in the market where they look for pieces of the bike. Yeah. And so how to function in such an environment where the person is deconstructed by the institutions themselves who who should be taking care of that person exactly yeah you know and and what what i i guess is is even more telling is that it's not just one right he doesn't just go to the police and stop there he puts in the effort to go to all of these other institutions as well you know in in watching the film I think one of the big questions that comes out is a question between whether the film privileges human optimism or social pessimism. That is whether by the end of the film, we're supposed to say, you know, in that moment when Bruno takes Antonio by the hand and they sort of walk off into this sunset, some unknown future, whether the film is saying, okay, despite all of the circumstances, despite the bike being stolen, despite Antonio essentially becoming a thief himself, are we meant to see their relationship as something that can give hope for the future? Or on the other hand, is the message of the film that there is no hope for the, the individual, that that society as it was 
gives a very pessimistic outlook on life and that people are confined or constrained to stay where they're put, essentially. And I personally am not sure. I can see both sides. And I think that throughout the film, Bruno is is a very important part of the film. Throughout the film, you often see him looking up to his dad. And so you have these sort of visual cues throughout the film that say, you know, Bruno is admiring his dad. And there's a certain point where that stops, right? So at a certain point when Antonio slaps Bruno, you get this spatial distance between the two. So Bruno sort of walks away from his dad and kind of stays on his own. But he also stops making eye contact with his dad and looking up at his dad. And perhaps for a moment, you could say that they're equals to some extent, that they're both on the same level at that point. And, you know, in this final moment, yes, Bruno does take his father by the hand and looks back up with him. So I do see some hope there that through these these relationships that, you know, there is a way that people can move forward and that through these connections that people are able to make that they can have hope for the future. But at the same time, you know, looking at the other 89, 90 minutes of the film, the the hope I think is lost, right? If there's any message to this film, it's that there really doesn't seem to be any help, whether from the church, from the state, from work unions, and even from just the society in general. When Antonio eventually does steal the bike, the people are so quick to sort of come and be this threatening presence. Whereas when his bike is stolen and he's screaming, thief, thief, nobody comes to help him. And so, you know, if this film has a message, which unfortunately it's a sad one, I would say that there isn't much hope, at least in this period, until we reach the the economic miracle of the, the 1950s and 1960s. One last question maybe for you, Dan. How was it received? Uh, So it came out in 1949. How was it received in Italy and around the world? Uh, That's a good question. And I'm not familiar enough with the film's reception. But I do know that, you know, I think because of the time period that people very much wanted to see these kinds of stories. Um, I think that they wanted to grapple with some of the difficulties that these stories set up. But I'm not entirely sure about their reception. I know that now it's one of the sort of quintessential neorealist films, but contemporaneously with when the film was released, I'm not entirely sure, unfortunately. Anything else that you would like that I forgot to ask you or that you would like to bring up? Yeah, there's a moment in the film. So in the slap sequence, when Antonio slaps Bruno, the director, De Sica, was having a really hard time making Bruno's tears seem authentic. And so what he did was he he put some used cigarette butts in the pockets of his jacket and took him aside and sort of pulled these cigarette butts out of his pocket and, and was like, what are you doing? Like, you, you're going to disappoint your mother. You're going to disappoint your father. You, like, you can't do this to the point of making Enzo Staiola cry solely so that they could then use that for the film and use his real tears for the film. And it's just one of those small moments, I think, where you really, again, get at the sort of constructedness of neorealism that, yes, they want to depict realistically a society, but that there's a lot of fabrication and construction that goes into depicting that reality. Of course, that, yeah. that was a, a great insight yeah. and a sad one as well. Real yes. Tears, real tears on, on yeah. this film. Um, yeah. Well, thank you very much. No problem. 
Thank you for joining us today on From the Booth. Our podcast is produced by the International Cinema Program at BYU and supported by the BYU College of Humanities. We're solely responsible for the opinions and ideas expressed here, as they do not represent any official position adopted by the university or its supporting institutions. We thank our producer, Dewey Walter, our sound engineer, Marina Ekstrom-Pratt, Johnny Stallings, who composed the music, and all the musicians involved in making our jingle possible. The BYU Humanities Research Center also for their help and support. Until next week, keep streaming. Keep streaming.